Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's time for the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is the voice of the working class, Rick Smith. And welcome, brothers, sisters, working class heroes. This is the Rick Smith Show. Thanks so much for being here today on the big program. Lots to get to. Lots to talk about. I got to tell you, I'm... Every day I'm I'm taken a little bit further back by my Republican friends who there there's no depth. No depth to the depravity, no uh no no depth to the the gimmicks, the the things that they will do. I know the ends justify the means. We we we've we've got an agenda to move. Destroy democracy, get our way like children, like little children in the cereal aisle. Saw this story. Uh, now, for a while, as you know, they've been trying to impeach Homeland Security Secretary uh, Mayorkas. And uh, <laughs> they can't because there's there's nothing there. Uh, the guy's doing his job, but there's there's no evidence of any any criminal conspiracy. Uh, there's no no other improper activity. There's nothing. There's no high crimes, misdemeanors. There's There's no impeachable offenses there. There's just, we don't like the guy. He's not doing what we want him to do. Um, so, you know, they've got to they've got to change uh, the standards. And they have a new proposed standard for impeaching uh, a cabinet official. And it's it's no longer, you know, the the you know, you know, the the old one, which was fairly high cuz you, you you don't want, you know, people just to go be able to go in and wipe out uh, the, the cabinet of of uh, the White House. Uh, now the new standard that they want is, is gross incompetence. And again, I don't know what the heck that means. Uh, that's a very subjective term, which is why they use it. And, and well, the one they were going to use is because we feel like it. They didn't think would gather. It didn't sound official enough. <laughs> but that's basically what this is, because we want to. And, and understand, this will trickle down to Joe Biden as well. Because, you know, when they when they go after Biden, there's nothing there as well. So, of course, we're going to trickle down to because, well, just because we want to. And on Wednesday, <laughs> interesting, interesting thing. They were There was going to be a contempt hearing um, uh, because Hunter Biden didn't show up for a hearing. So they were going to have a contempt hearing. And then Hunter Biden showed up. <laughs> And House Republicans had no idea what to do. L- literally, 
literally no idea. He's like, okay, I'm here. I'm ready to testify. And they're like, no, 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 you, you, you no, you can't testify. <laughs> it was, it was quite comical to be honest with you. Um, and, and I got to tell you, one of the key moments that I, I found, I found quite interesting, uh, cause Marjorie three names, every time, uh, she gets a chance, she shows Hunter Biden's, uh, little Hunter. And, and I got to tell you, there's, there's something weird there. Something really weird that some kind of a fetish that Marjorie Three Names has got with with Little Hunter. Uh, I don't know if it's a jealousy thing. I don't know, I, but she's showing it a lot. Uh, but again, she showed the the photos of of Little Hunter, and and I love the fact that when you know she was about to speak, Hunter Biden got uh, got up, walked out of the hearing room, and took the cameras and everything out in the hallway to, so he could answer questions, so no one heard Marjorie Three Names speak. I thought that. Way to go. Because <laughs> nobody really wants to hear her talk anyway. Uh, but yeah, so uh, lots of fun in the house. Not getting anything done. I mean, there's, don't get me wrong. They're not going to do any actual work. Uh, it's all about showmanship. It's all about the game. It's all about, uh, hey, look at me. Uh, but they looked bad. Uh, but here's the weird thing. We could be going through another uh, House Speaker roulette. Uh, it seems nobody happy with Speaker Johnson. And that didn't take long, did it? Uh, a little bit longer than I, I thought it would. But this is what happens when you actually want to govern, when you actually want to have a system that, you know, pays our bills, that doesn't put the country into default, that doesn't cause mass chaos, that doesn't starve children, uh, not more than they're already doing. Uh, and Republicans aren't happy. You got Chip Roy. Who said, hey, I mean, he, he's not ruling out a motion to vacate the chair, which here we go. This could be fun. All because why? Oh, yeah, because Johnson worked with Democrats to maybe not shut down the government over over spending. They came up with a spending deal. Now, I know, I know it's 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 insane. How dare he? How dare he? Uh, now. Republicans losing their mind because, well, he got taken. He got taken to the cleaners. There's a hundred stories on this. And it's, it's, it's amazing to me to listen to these people who, I got to tell you, it's, it's, quite, it's quite sad that these are people who are our elected officials. Now, interestingly enough, on Wednesday, you had uh, Johnson who took um, you know, some of his fellow Republicans behind closed doors and, and basically begged, uh, you know, please, please stop criticizing me on social media. Please. Please stop criticizing my budget negotiating prowess on social media, please. Uh, and I don't think that's going to help because they're going to. Because, look, they want chaos. They want pain and suffering. They want they want a shutdown, man. They want tax cuts for rich people. They want to cut Social Security and Medicare. They want to take food from the mouths of children. Yeah. And, you know, the thing is, is... These are people who are keep telling us this stuff. You know, I go back to the Trump years. What was the only legislative victory Trump had? Massive tax handouts for the very wealthy. We keep enriching the very wealthy at the expense of everybody else. And what we've seen in this country over the last 50 years is a massive redistribution of wealth from the people who go to work every day and bust their behinds, people like you and me who go to work every single day to support our families. And we end up being the ones who take care of the very wealthy. 
not just in the jobs that we do, cleaning up after their mess, taking care of their every need, but also picking up the tax burden. Because the vast majority of them, I know, I know, but Rick, they pay all the taxes. Just listen to them. They'll talk about how, how bird, overburdened they are, how horrible the tax system is to our poor wealthy people. But reality is, reality is, they get away pretty, pretty easy, especially considering the rest of the industrialized world. Uh, rich people in those countries pay a much higher rate. But we're, we're exceptional. We're special. Our rich people, they figured out a way to get the working people to take care of them. And it comes back down to policy. And how, how did they do it? Well, they've done it by getting us to vote over nonsense issues. You know, look at this thing with Mayorkas. You know, the reality is, if Congress really wanted to do something about that they didn't agree with Mayorkas, they could pass a law. They could actually do their job and pass an immigration law, but you know they're not going to. Because much like the, the abortion issue, the immigration issue is more important to them than a solution would be. Look what happened when they, when they found the solution that they wanted for abortion. All their money dried up. And then the other side was able to pick up the, the issue and, and make political hay and lots of money off of it. So I got to tell you, folks, there's going to be no solution on immigration. And we are going to hear Republicans whine and complain about all of this while continuing to make our economic future less stable and worse because, well, they got to keep feeding the rich people. But the question is, who does pay all the taxes? When we come back, John Whiten's going to be here to share some, some thoughts on who exactly does pay taxes in this country. Back after this. We are AFGE, the American Federation of Government Employees. We represent 700,000 federal and D.C. government workers who are the vital threads of the fabric of American life. We support our nation's military. We take care of our nation's veterans. We protect our nation's borders. We respond to our nation's crises and natural disasters. We provide services to our nation's seniors. The American Federation of Government Employees. We work for America. Welcome back to the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. So we hear all the time, rich people pay all the taxes. I'm sure you've heard it. Uh, and that we're our, our poor rich people, they're so overburdened with taxes that we need more tax cuts. And that, you know, tax cuts are the panacea. It's how we're going to have economic activity. It's how it's going to create jobs. It's how we're going to cure cancer. It's how we're going to help ail the poor. It's how we're going to do all of the things that... Uh, that, you know, it's how we're going to get to the moon. It's how we're going to, you know, make babies stop crying. It's it's the end-all, be-all, do-all of, of any policy. Tax cuts. At least, you know, my Republican friends think so. Uh, but the question is, is who really does pay the taxes and who pays more? We hear this, and, and I hate the frame of the rich people need to pay their fair share. No, they need to pay taxes. Uh, they've got all the money. Uh, they should be paying more taxes. At least that's my view. But the question is, is who is paying the taxes. And that's why I've asked John Whiten to come talk with us. John is the deputy director at the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy. They have an in-depth study out answering that question. Who pays? John, thanks for taking time for us. Thanks for having me, Rick. Uh, happy to be here. And um, 
You're right. I mean, you hear all the time that the rich people are paying all the taxes, but what this report shows, this report looks specifically at state and local taxes, right? So what we did is we took an in-depth look. We counted up 99.7% of all state and local taxes across the country in all 50 states plus DC. And what we found is that on the whole, state tax codes are upside down. They're regressive. So that means the less you earn, the greater the share of your income you're paying in state and local taxes. Um, you know, and we we're seeing that state lawmakers are really falling down on the job here, yep. right? They are they are failing to deliver what voters clearly want in terms of tax fairness. You see poll after poll that voters want, uh, they want the wealthy, they want corporations to pay more. And what we're finding in this study is that what we actually have is the exact opposite. But, you know, I look at my state of Pennsylvania and uh, we have a flat tax. And, you know, we're told that, you know, flat tax would answer all of the, of the questions. When you realize that, you know, the flat tax system that we have created this environment of the, the person who's making minimum wage, paying a higher percentage of their income in taxes. Uh, yeah, this is this is the world in which we live in. Sure. Yeah. And, and Pennsylvania is one of the 10 worst states uh, that know. we found in this study. Um, and the thing that really brings all of those states together is they either have no income tax or they have a flat income tax or one that's like virtually flat, you know, hardly any brackets. And the reason for that, a flat tax sounds good in theory, right? If if you could actually design an entire tax system that was flat, okay, sure. Some people would like that idea. Some people want something more proportional and sort of progressive, but some people would say fair is or flat is fair, right? But uh, and you have to think about the whole tax system. You know, it's not just the income tax. So if you've got a flat income tax, you still got sales taxes, you've got property taxes, you've got all these other taxes that disproportionately uh, impact those who are making less. So then a flat tax doesn't do anything to offset that. And you're left with this sort of uh, totally upside down uh, scenario. And you go with these these regressive like, like a sales tax, for instance. Uh, where you have people who you know basically spend every dime that they earn just to just to exist on on food and clothing and housing and things that they need, you know those things are going to be taxed on 100% of their income. Whereas you know someone who's you know Elon Musk is not spending well Elon doesn't have a lot of income, uh, he you know he's just got a lot of wealth, uh, but they're not spending that wealth, they're not spending that money, so it's not subject to taxation, which again is another another way rich people stay rich, uh, they're not subject to taxes. Yeah, sure. I mean, there's really two issues there, and you 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 alluded to them both. One is that even with earned income of wealthier families, um, they cannot, even the sort of most profligate uh, wealthy person cannot spend uh, the same share of their income as someone who's poor does and, and pay the same in sales tax, right? They're just making way too much. So they save, they invest, they do all that kind of stuff. Um, so you're they're saving there. And then the wealth aspect is a whole nother angle, right? And this report does not incorporate wealth. Um, it's just earned income. But what we know is that if we did incorporate wealth, we know based on patterns and other work that we've done, that this situation would be even worse, right? And, and we would see that if you're including all of that income uh, and including wealth as income there, 
that the the wealthy would be paying even less. You said Pennsylvania is one of the worst states. Uh, what are the worst states? Sure. Well, uh, I'm gonna ru- I'll run down the the top ten, and this is in order of worst to slightly less worse. Right. Uh, Florida is the the worst state in the nation for tax fairness at this point. Uh, that is new. They they used to be number two, number three, but this year they are uh, at the dead bottom. Wait a second. Uh, I thought Florida was supposed to be the the tax haven, the the the, the tax paradise. I, I'm told Florida is the place to go. Right. Well, so there's, yeah, this report, I think it really exposes one of the many sort of what I like to call low tax lies, right? So states like Florida, Texas, Tennessee, all those states are in the 10 worst, by the way, of this report. They get a lot of press. They get a lot of attention for being low tax. Um, But when you dig in and you crunch the numbers like our team did, they're really only low tax for the wealthiest family. And they are. I mean, if you're a a millionaire, you move into Florida, you're probably going to save a lot on your taxes. Um, But they're not low tax for every other family, right? In fact, uh, they're often higher tax for middle class people or low income people than so-called high tax states like California or or New York are for the rich. So maybe we call Florida in in those in the Tennessees in those states the you know the rich people welfare states then because that's yeah, what sure. it sounds like. It sounds like you know poor people are subsidizing rich people to to to, to subsidize their lifestyle. Yeah, I mean it, that is you know that those those states at the at the very bottom of these of the rankings in in this report have the most sort of upside down tax codes and that's exactly it the the poorest people there are paying just an astronomical share of their income uh in state and local taxes and the wealthy are paying um you know sometimes like sometimes the the poor people are paying more than three times of the effective tax rate as like the top one percent so let me ask you this, because I'm going I'm to bring up the dreaded R word, uh, redistribution, uh, because it sounds like we're redistributing wealth from from poor people to wealthy people. Now, I remember during the Tea Party era, you know, people were saying, you know, to me anyway, you're talking about redistribution of wealth. And I'm going, yeah, I want a tax system that redistributes, redistributes wealth uh, to from the very wealthy to people who create the wealth, the working people who actually do the work through better wages, through better health care, through better opportunities of education and all of that stuff uh, like we used to have. I, I want a system that works for everybody. I don't want rich people to be out on the on the, on the street corner with a, a tin cup begging with pencils. Uh, that, that'll never happen. But I also don't want a system where we are right now where the working poor, is subs- they're subsidizing the Elon Musks of the world. So for sure. me, a, a distributive system that ensures that work pays and that we don't have ultra wealthy people, you know, sucking off the backs of of minimum wage workers is is a system I think most people I think could get on board with. Yeah, I mean, I think you do see that most people support that kind of system, um, you know, in most public polling and in, in states and nationally, you see that. And I think, you know, to your point, <laughs> the our tax code, both at the state level and at the federal level, to a lesser extent, right, has it has changed so much in the last 20 or 30 years um, that there is a ton of policy and political space to make the system more 
redistributive, right? Uh, without really any great harm, if you will, to anyone who's wealthy. They, they've got a lot of money and they're basically able to hoard it. Right. Um, and uh, at the expense of, you know, funding the public services and such, they could help everyone. Look, nobody's talking about digging up Dwight Eisenhower. We're not talking right. about going back to the 1953 tax code of a top marginal rate of 91 92%. Nobody's right. talking about that. Well, maybe me. But nobody else is talking about that. Because I, I, I got to tell you, I think we should be taxing billionaires out of existence. Uh, it's something that our society shouldn't have. But that's just my personal view. Policy-wise, right. I don't think there's anybody out there that, that's pushing that ideology. Uh, but I, I just I think it's bad for democracy. I think it's bad for an economy to have one person having so much wealth. But one of the things that, that caught my attention in your study is that you point out that, on average, the lowest income 20%, uh, the lowest income 20% of taxpayers face state and local tax rates nearly 60% higher than the top 1%. That is mind-blowing to me because, again, we're told that, again, the, the very wealthy pay all the taxes. And we want to believe that the people, you know, the, the, the caveman ideology of, you know, the person with the biggest shoulders carries the most water, that the wealthy are carrying the, the, the weight of the, the country on their shoulders. This, not so much. Yeah, no, and not so much indeed, right? It it is um, uh, at the state and local level is totally upside down, totally backwards, and that sixty percent figure, um, that's the national average, right? So that includes a bunch of states uh, that aren't regressive, not a bunch, but you know, there's seven states that that don't have regressive uh, tax codes, um, and so in the in the really bad states, in the places like Florida, in the places like Texas. Tennessee, um, as I said, that 60% figure is between 200 and 300% instead. So how do we fix this? Um, you know, look, I, I go back to the Biden years where the beginning of the Biden term where we, we cut child poverty in half uh, with, with a child tax credit. And my Republican yeah. friends and Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema saw it in their in their best interest to gut that and and make children hungry again. Uh, we have an earned income tax credit system that uh, can help people, especially folks at the bottom, uh, make ends meet. Um, is there a way to to correct this? Is there a way to help, especially on the federal level? Because a lot of these states, uh, that is the draw in a lot of these states. We punish our poor people better than anybody else. Uh, what what's the policy uh, way forward in this? Right. So, I mean, you touched on a lot of the elements of a solution. And and I will say, since you mentioned the child tax credit and the earned income tax credit, I'd be remiss if I don't talk a little bit about the best states. Right. Uh, we talked about the worst states and it's fun to pick on the worst states sometimes. But there are states that have been doing better. And um, one of the things that we see that joins all those states together is that they've got really strong state level child tax credits. They've got strong state level earned income tax credits. And then usually they're also doing a good job at having a highly progressive personal income tax that's asking the wealthy to pay more than in other states. So that's sort of the the blueprint for other states to follow. However, you know, the political context in the states, and I'll talk about federal in a minute, but political context in the states has really shifted so much, right? So the first thing that states ought to do to fix this problem is stop making it worse. You know, in the past few years, we've seen 
big tax cut after big tax cut that this report documents has brought a bunch of states uh, much worse on our on our inequality index. You know, Kentucky is a great example of that. They've just been cutting taxes, and you see it in their ranking. They're getting more and more regressive. Arizona, they passed a ballot measure taxing the rich. That got overturned by the legislature, and then the legislature turned around and cut taxes for those same rich people. That tumbled Arizona down in the rankings so and much. Kansas was so, the poster child for it. Sure. Kansas, you know, uh, several years back did the same thing. So the first thing, and, and we've got more states looking to do it this year, you know, um, Governor Reynolds in Iowa is expected to announce a big, you know, a push for eliminating the income tax there. I think today, today, tomorrow, something like that, this week sometime. Um, so the first thing is to sort of stop the bleeding. The second thing is to really focus on the refundable credits and making your income tax more fair at the top. Taxing corporations better at the state level is also critically important, right? We've got um, a ton of corporate loopholes that get a little less attention, I think, at the state level than at the federal level, but they're vitally important. But this is, um, this is turned yeah, into, ahead. John, a red hat, blue hat issue. I mean, it's not even, you know, for me, everything for I look at things as as up down. Uh, it's 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 the wealthy versus everyone else. It's the, the Occupy Wall Street frame. It's the 99 percent versus the one percent. But we are pitted against each other in the red hat, blue hat frame. This is Democrat, Republican, right, left, conservative, liberal, however you want to use that 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 red hat, blue hat. This isn't for me a red hat, blue hat issue, but it's it's how we're how we're pitted against each other. The working class of this country should should be all on board with what you're talking about and ensuring that corporate America pays its fair share, a reasonable share. The wealthy pay into a system that makes sure that we have roads, bridges, education, health care, the things that that working people need and earn um but we're not there yeah and you know the thing is i think um a lot of people are there you know a lot of people in their heart of hearts and in their minds are there they understand that that's what they want and then in the actual political debates over tax policy the fear-mongering starts right the um Case in point, a couple of years ago in Massachusetts, there was a ballot initiative to, for a millionaire's tax, right? And they're out there, the opponents are out there saying that basically if you own a house, you're going to have to pay this tax. And that's just not true, yeah, right? The death but tax the, argument. Yeah, everyone's right. gonna, When you die, everyone's going to pay tax. I hope I have to pay taxes when I die because I would sure. love to leave $11 million to my children. That would be a nice thing, right? Um, but, you know, you, you start to... Uh, the opposition, uh, the people who are sort of against a fair tax code, peel off a lot of voters that way. And um, then they're able to kind of railroad their agenda through. And it's uh, it's a real challenge trying to, to figure out how to solve for that problem. It's crazy. A crazy world we now live in. Last question I've got for you. Uh, the study, uh, you know, what are we hoping comes out of this? What are we what are we hoping? What, what are we hoping the result is? Yeah, I mean, we are hoping that all of our partners out in all the states use this during their state legislative sessions, which have, which have just started this week, right? So, like, this is designed to be a study that is really um, used by lawmakers and advocacy organizations, grassroots groups who want to make their tax codes fair. And I think we're already starting to see that this week, and I think it's going to continue, you know, for the whole year. We will most certainly see. But, John, I appreciate you taking some time for us. Uh, good stuff, as always. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me.
uh, John Whiten. He is the uh, deputy director over there at the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy. You can check out their website, itep.org. We'll get links out on social media. Also check out the study, uh, whopays.org. Uh, whopays.org. We'll get links out as well as you can check out this study. And look, uh, the reality uh, we should be we should be looking at this stuff and demanding our legislatures take action. Uh, for folks watching on our free speech TV program, uh, thanks so much for tuning in. We'll see you back here tomorrow, uh, folks on our radio affiliates. A uh, quick break right back after this. Stick around. This is the Rick Smith Show. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. So one of my favorite quotes of the day comes from Minnesota Representative Dean Phillips, who evidently held a big event in uh, in New Hampshire. Because uh, as you know, he's, he's running for president, right? Uh, as a Democrat, Dean Phillips uh, decided that, you know, Joe Biden needed a challenger in the primary. And by golly, he was going to be that challenger because the people, the people wanted him, a groundswell of support. Uh, everyone was clamoring for someone to run against Joe because nobody wants him. So New Hampshire was the battleground and Dean Phillips, the man, and held a big campaign event where absolutely no one showed up. Um, and here's the thing. I think even Rick Santorum's mocking him because Santorum at least got two people to show up. I mean, I think they at least put out crackers or something. I mean, how do you not get anyone, anyone to maybe put on a jacket or something, maybe one of your staffers for a photo op? I, I don't know. But he said, sometimes you build it and they don't come. No one was coming, Dean. No one. Uh and you spent a lot of, wasted a lot of your money. Wasted a lot of your money. Here to share some thoughts on this and, well, all of the other insane stories of the day. I've asked our good friend Sarah Burris to come talk with us. Sarah's a reporter at Raw Story, rawstory.com, the website. Sarah, what do you think of Dean Phillips building it? And, well, no one coming. Well, the money that he spent, you know, was coming from Harlan Crow. He's, he's one of the biggest donors to Dean Phillips campaign against joe biden he harlan crow the texas billionaire who is um judge clarence thomas's bff you know and takes care of him on, on the side um so I sugar think, daddy yeah and so it makes sense that that dean phillips like i think people look at that and understand the lack of authenticity and you know your reference to crackers i think um you know my point is that 
some of the best wisdom I've ever heard came from South Park, and that's you got to give people punch and pie. Punch and pie. More yeah. people come if you have punch and pie. And it's got to be good pie. True. Got to be good pie. No, no, that's a, that's a <laughs> simple wisdom. Maybe, maybe the next time. Maybe when they go to Iowa. You know who knows. Uh, but you know that wasn't even the best quote of of that I came across today. My favorite was a story that you wrote, uh, where the one the punchline uh, of a Trump supporter uh, being interviewed by a comedian comedian was uh, the Trump supporter blurted out, "You know, you can't fight fire with water." I know it's it's crazy for to have your your favorite quote of the year come so early in the year, but this is just a gem. It's a Christmas a miracle. Dude. It's a it's a New Year's miracle. It's a MLK Day miracle. It is all of the things. Um, this comes from the guys at Good Liars who uh, wander around and ask Trump people questions, it, it, and it really isn't. You know, they're not doing it to make Trump people look stupid. They just look. They stupid. do that on their own. Yeah, and this dude is wearing, um, I think, a, a, an army green, uh, all rifles matter shirt, explaining the gun-free zone thing, and he's like, "Can't fight fire with water. Got to fight fire with fire." And the good liars dude is like, "They literally fight fire with water, my man." Yeah, that's what comes out of those hoses. Shocked me. I, I, who knew this whole time, right? All of those fire hydrants, water comes out of there, not fire. Just call them water hydrants. <laughs> could be, could be, could be foam. Could be Kool Aid for all we know. Could yeah. be punch. Could be, could be punch and pie. Could be. <laughs> uh, but here's the thing. I mean, you know, am I surprised at that? No, not surprised at that at all. Uh, what What is kind of surprising? What was kind of surprising, and I'm sure you saw this on Tuesday when Trump's lawyers were arguing before the appeals court, uh, that that Trump is basically immune from any criminal prosecution over any actions, including, and this is the part that's amazing to me, uh, that if he sent SEAL Team 6 out to assassinate a political rival, no, no, he, perfectly okay. So uh, just a caveat here, just an aside a little bit. Uh, because Trump ha is running on the revenge platform, especially for people in media or people that he perceives as a threat or anyone he doesn't like, uh, you know, the revenge tour. Uh, I will not be jumping out of any windows. If you hear a story that I've jumped out of a window, it's not true. I don't like heights. That would not be my preferred way of going. That would never happen. So just, just want to get that out there. Uh, I would never, never do myself in, especially by jumping out of windows. But now that I've got that out of the way, um, yeah, here, here you've got the lawyers for Trump saying, you know, if he, if he, if he knocked off his, his political rival, yay, uh, that's okay. Now, here's my question: um, If the judge says that's okay, and Biden goes and knocks off Trump, would that then be okay? That is sort of the question that all of this is presenting because Trump is saying. Uh, you know, he spent like the last week or so saying, well, now, if we if we don't hold, if we can't hold, um, uh, you know, if presidents don't have presidential immune, immunity or absolute immunity, then anybody can so, sue Joe Biden whenever he's out of office. And, and he made some veiled threat like, you know, six years of statute of limitations is a long time, Joe. 
And um, so it's this idea of he's going to sue Biden for, I think you said, the border and Afghanistan. And it's like, these are not crimes. Like, the thing is, is if you're going to indict somebody, you need a grand jury to be able to do it. You need some charges, you know, some crimes that you have to cite. This is a little bit more complicated than that. Um, and, and I feel like there's no win here for Donald Trump, because if, if the president has absolute immunity, I think that's an excellent time for Joe Biden to be like, well, now that I have absolute immunity, <laughs> yeah, let's do <laughs> some crime. Right. <laughs> right. Or just, just throw him in jail, just throw him, you know, in a, a refugee camp or something so we can get a clue. But isn't that, the, that this, the famous Nixon quote? Um, you know, the, well, if the president does it, it's, it's not illegal. Well, the Supreme Court ruled, yeah, it kind of is. And that's the thing that I feel like Mitch McConnell told us during the impeachment hearings is he said, you know, Trump's already out of office and this is something that we need to let the criminal justice system handle. And now Trump's saying, well, you know, I'm immune from the criminal justice system. Uh, it has to be an impeachment. And so you're just like, really, guys, come on. And, and at the same time, if you look at his documents case, they're using the reverse argument where, um, you know, because he uh, because of his, um, you know, access to documents or whatever that um, post presidency, it meant that he he somehow is um, is able to, you know, do whatever he wants. I mean, it's just like it's it's he's trying to say both things at the same time and it, it doesn't really work. Um, and I would say, too, the most important part for me out of all of this is going back to Dean Phillips. Donald Trump had one guy out there outside the courthouse for him on Tuesday <laughs> waving a flag. Um, and they paid him. <laughs> I don't know that. Uh, but they probably paid him. Who knows? Uh, but you know, what this comes down to is, is Trump, no matter what, will never be, in his mind, accountable for anything. And his supporters will not hold him accountable for anything. And I've, I've had these conversations with Trump supporters where it doesn't matter what he does. And you could go through all the scandal and all the things that any other politician throughout the history of, of this country would have been sunk with that have, have just kind of gone off, of, have rolled off of him, scandal after scandal after scandal. So Trump is used to being the Teflon Don. Now that there's some accountability, now that there's some consequence, he's he's not he's not liking it. He's not liking this, hey, someone's actually holding my feet to the fire. Well, one of the things that happened before he was out of office is they started doing some of the early stages of the New York fraud trial Um and, and Trump basically said, no, you can't take me to court because I'm the president right now and you can't do anything. Um, and in court, um, they used that Fifth Avenue line that he, you know, used so many years ago about his supporters. Yeah. And they, they said, look, you know, if Trump shoots a person on Fifth Avenue, the NYPD can't touch him. And the courtroom burst into laughter. And what what happened on Tuesday is that they made that same argument and you could hear a pin drop because they were dead serious. This isn't a joke anymore. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it, you know, and, and again, I think we're in a moment of, of, of legal uh, crisis. I mean, you know, the sad reality is, is, and I know you wrote a story here recently about a former, you know, Watergate prosecutor who, 
you know, you know, watched, you know, the Supreme Court, you know, you know, uh, give Nixon his comeuppance, uh, basically saying that it's going to fail for Trump, too. I don't know that these are the same Supreme Court justices uh, because Nixon got to a point, I guess, four, right? Um, yeah. I think we're a different country. I don't know that that we're, we're the same country that we were back then. I don't think there were people who were ready to go and, and storm the Capitol for Nixon back then. Uh, like we see today with Trump, because Trump himself is saying, look, if he loses because of all this, what, what was the word he used? There's going to be bedlam. Yeah. And the thing is, is um, the Watergate prosecutor, John Sale, um, former Mueller prosecutor, Andrew Weissman, both of them have been on TV this week, you know, basically talking about, uh, you know, Nixon tried a lot of this stuff. He tried veiled threats to Supreme Court justices, Um he, he, he tried all of the things, and their their faith in the justice system is so unflappable. It, it's a beautiful thing. It's amazing. It's something I really wish I had because, I mean, there there's this, this part of me that's thinking, yes, no, absolutely, the, the, the justice system will save us. And, but at the same time, I've spent the last four years covering, what, six years covering this idiot, and it, it it's over and over watching him work the system yep. and not be held accountable for anything. Yep. His whole life is that way. No, his whole life is that you are absolutely right in this. And, and look, he only cares about himself. And I look at this quote, um, that in this, in this interview he did with Lou Dobbs over on, uh, Frank TV. Uh, how far has Lou Dobbs fallen? I mean, <laughs> I mean, out of the whole interview, I kept, I'm watching this interview that Lou Dobbs is doing. I'm going, man, Lou, what have you done to your career? Uh, but he, you know, Trump went on this thing, you know, basically saying that, you know, he doesn't want to be Herbert Hoover. Uh, he says, quote, we have an economy that's incredible. Uh, we have an economy that's so fragile. And the only reason it's running, uh, it's running off the fumes of what we did. So it's, is it incredible or is it on its last legs? Uh, he can't decide. He wants them both. But he said, uh, when there's a crash, I hope it's during the next 12 months because I don't want to be Herbert Hoover. And my first thought was, well, too late. You already are Hoover. You already are Hoover. You left. And my second thought was, who put Hoover in Trump's head. And then I remembered about a month ago, uh, Biden did it. Uh, he said in four years, Donald Trump uh, was president. He was the only president other than Herbert Hoover who actually lost jobs in a four-year period. That's why I often think of him as Donald Herbert Hoover Trump. And I go, that's how it got into his head. That's why this came out. The thing is, is um, I mean, it's not just that he lost jobs. Uh, Hoover lost something like 11 million jobs. Trump lost twice that. Yep. 22 million jobs that he lost because he just completely screwed up the entire COVID situation. And it, he didn't have to. That's the thing. He it, it was just all about looking better than he actually was and pretending like everything was fine um, when it wasn't. And, um, you know, if he had kind of got under this thing um like you know planned ahead yep. all of those sorts of things then maybe he could have protected himself but instead you know he he actively wants to see those of us who have been clawing our way back out of the COVID economy just 
just throw us back in because it's better for him politically. It's better for him. And he doesn't care about any of any of the red hats right. or any of the, the working people. I mean, look, he doesn't care about anyone who doesn't isn't loyal to him. So anybody who didn't vote for him, he, he, he doesn't care about you anyway. But you loyal folk. You red hats, you people who bought the hat and the T-shirt and waved the flag and put the sticker on the bumper. He, he is telling you in the next 12 months, he hopes the economy collapses and you lose your job. You lose everything. Your kids go hungry. You lose your home. You lose your savings. You lose everything because, well, it's good for him. It's good for him. And it means that then he'll have presidential immunity and he can get rid of his federal cases. And he could throw me out of a window. Uh, but I did learn I did learn something during the Lou Dobbs interview that I did not know before. Did you know we passed the Green New Deal? Uh, evidently, yeah. there's a Green New Deal that I didn't know about. Uh, but Trump's ranting and raving about this Green New Deal that's building all of this stuff. And I'm going, man, I hope he's right. Oh, if only. That's the thing, right, is they, I think the they've taken the transportation package, which is incredible incredibly popular. Everybody in the country loved it. Everyone is grateful for it. And they're trying to turn it into the Green New Deal. Um, and it's like, I don't know how you make a road green, but good on you for trying. Paint. <laughs> I don't know how you sell that. <laughs> paint. You just paint it green. Right? You just paint it. <laughs> uh, I got to get your thoughts on this James Comer. Uh, and changing, sort of changing topics a little bit. Uh, because I don't know if you saw the the Elise Stefanik thing uh, with Kirsten Walker, Welker, Walker, whatever her name is, uh, and basically you know her steamrolling over uh, uh, Stefanik, steamrolling over Welker, and her defense going, well, you know they brought up, you know they're going after Hunter Biden um, because Comer is all in on going after Biden. Mm -hmm. um, have they found anything? I mean, you, you you've got a story out uh, about Comer, you know, looking through the family finances, you know, with, with, with the fine-tooth comb, looking for something, anything on this fishing expedition, trying to find foreign money. Uh, they got anything? Well, the only thing he's been able to find is that um, Joe Biden lent his son some money to buy uh, a truck, a pickup truck, in 2018. And his son paid back the money that he loaned him. And so somehow that they're trying to say that that money then came from China. Um, I think it's a stretch, but what has happened, um, I think it was the, maybe in like 2017, 2018, um, when Democrats were in control of the house, the house oversight committee began an investigation into Trump's emoluments issues. Um, he had the, the hotel that was right next door to the white house and, and all of these, international people would come and stay there and spend money there. And the thought was, you know, this is an example of people, foreign entities trying to buy influence with the president. And um, the, the oversight committee Democrats were able to find, you know, two years worth of information. And, and, um, and once they got to a point in their investigation where they needed more info, James Comer shut the whole thing down because he took over and was, and, and now he has become this obstructionist to try and stop, you know, more information coming to light. I think it's, it's something like um, $8 million that Trump earned um, 
just from what they were able to find in the very initial stages over like a year and a half, maybe two years. So, you know, that's them just getting started, right? <laughs> Imagine where they were in 19 and, um, and I mean, obviously they lost a lot of money in 20, but Jared Kushner made it back for him. Yeah, no, no I'm, I'm sure he did. I'm sure he did. And what's interesting though is there, there, there's this. They're looking for, they're looking for, for foreign money uh, over here in, in the Biden camp because they, they believe, they believe that there's something there. Uh, but we know there's, there's tons of money over there on the Trump side. Just can't go looking at that because that would be weaponizing government. Then. Right, right. It's not weaponizing government if you're going after Democrats, but if you're going after Republicans, then then you're weaponizing the government. Yeah. Okay. Um, Tell that to so. Kirsten Wilker. Yeah, she needs to get a little harder on those interview questions because I think that's a, an excellent time to start asking at least Stefanik about this idea of January Sixers being hostages. You know, a lot of a lot of the Israeli families are are not happy about that comment. They're criminals. It's that simple. Finally, got to get your thought on the uh, uh, on the most uh, on the mo- the most recent story out of the trailer park. Um, uh, evidently, uh, Jason Bobert called the police on uh, on Lauren Bobert. He's now saying he shouldn't have, but he did. He claims he overreacted. Um, and any thoughts on the uh, on the latest? Because uh, evidently, the claim is she punched him in the face at a restaurant, and and, and you know. There's, there's chaos in the trailer park. I wasn't sure if it was at her old restaurant or it was some other restaurant. And if it was, remember the name of their town is something like Rifle or Rifle something Rifle and the, 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 the restaurant was Shooters. Yeah. And so, and she carries, you know, so I, I'm just asking in a, in a world of stand your ground where you're armed in a town called Rifle in a restaurant named Shooters and you punch him in the face. Like, that's not very pro-Second Amendment. <laughs> I'm just saying, right? Like, stand your ground there, Bobert. No, you know, Shooters closed a while ago, I believe. They were at a different restaurant. But uh, would that not solve the problem if they just stood there, both of them? Nah, never mind. Never. Or duel. Just, again, bring back the duel. Remember the era of the duel. Let the Republicans duel. There you go. See, my problem with that is I, I could be on board with that. But here's how I know my luck goes. Um, two idiots would go, let's duel. And they would both you know, do their paces. They would turn. They would shoot. And they would both hit me. <laughs> That's how my luck works. And then you would fall out a window. And then. <laughs> <laughs> and then, then I would fall out a window. Uh, there you go. Uh, <laughs> Sarah, as always, amazing stuff. I hope folks will check out the work over at Raw Story, rawstory.com, the website. Sarah Burris, the reporter. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Have an awesome week. Uh, great seeing you again. Remember, check out the website, uh, rawstory.com. Back after this. Stick around. You're listening to The Rick Smith Show. We're working people. Come to talk. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1912. 
That was the day a strike launched one of the most iconic rallying cries of the U.S. labor movement. 20,000 mostly women workers in the Lawrence, Massachusetts textile mills began what became known as the Bread and Roses Strike. Led by the industrial workers of the world, the strike was one of the most important events in the history of women workers. The phrase bread and roses had been used a year earlier by poet John Oppenheim. He published his poem in the American Magazine. His first verse read, As we come marching, marching in the beauty of the day, a million darkened kitchens, a thousand mill lofts gray are touched with all the radiance that a sudden sun discloses for the people hear us singing, bread and roses, bread and roses. The second stanza continued, as we come marching, marching, unnumbered women dead, go crying through our singing, their ancient cry for bread, small art and love and beauty, their drudging spirits new. Yes, it is bread we fight for, but we fight for roses too. The poem described a call by workers not just for bread or better wages for the basic needs of life. It also called for roses, a life that could include time for beauty and meaning. In 1976, Mimi Farina, the sister of Joan Baez, put the lyrics to music. In 2000, a filmmaker used the title Bread and Roses for his story of unionization efforts of Mexican workers in Los Angeles. And for the past century, the image of Bread and Roses has continued to capture the imagination of working people standing up for their rights. As we come marching, marching, we bring the greater days. For the rising of the women means the Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. Welcome back to The Rick Smith Show. Check out our website, thericksmithshow.com. Questions, comments, something on your mind, email me, rick, at thericksmithshow.com. So I, 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 I got to beat up. I got to beat up on Dean Phillips one more time. Just just, just one more time on poor, poor Dean Phillips. Uh, and not just not just Dean Phillips, but also Mariana Williamson. Uh, evidently, they they're both running for Democratic uh, presidential candidate people. And and look, I like Mariana Williamson. Uh, I, I think she's got some some good ideas. I think she's smart. Uh, I yeah, I find I find her interesting. Evidently, yeah. Look, look, they they need they need to do things to find attention. And as I said earlier, uh, Phillips had a, had a held a campaign. I don't, was it a campaign event? Uh, he was standing in the middle of nowhere where nobody showed up, uh, but him. Uh, I mean, he thought it was a campaign event. Uh, there was a campaign event that nobody showed up to that. There's that. Uh, but on Monday, uh, there was a debate, uh, a democratic presidential candidates debate, uh, without Joe Biden. Uh, it was between Dean Phillips and Marianna Williamson. Um, and it was a big dud. Um, but, uh, it was, the funny thing is, is you know they they did it in front of a you know a, a class full of seventh graders, uh, people who can't even vote. And look, I think it's great. I think it's great that the the teacher thought it was a good thing to exercise in democracy. And this is what I love about New Hampshire. Uh, you know, it's 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 quite remarkable. But if you're running for president, really, really running for president, uh, this is this kind of waste of your time. Just just throwing it out there. And some good news. Let's finish on some good news. Uh, Republicans are going to think this is good news. They're going to be they're going to be quite upset. In fact, uh, former Minnesota Congresswoman Michelle Bachman going to lose her mind because she she was right on this. Uh, Crazy Michelle was right uh, that she was against the Affordable Care Act, otherwise known as the dreaded Obamacare, because and she said this uh, once people get it, 
uh, you're not going to be able to get it from them. And then they're going to they're going to want to make it better, and that will be bad for us. Uh, they're going to they're going to like it. They're going to want to improve it, and then it's never going to go away. And here's the thing. Obamacare enrollment has broken another record. More than 20 million people have signed up for plans uh, in the marketplace and surpassing the the record of 16 million. So not just not just, you know, just inching past blowing by. Uh, And I got to wonder if one of those people would have been the uh, uh, Mary Mary Lou Raton. Did you see the story of Mary Lou? Mary Lou had pneumonia, she said, uh, but didn't have health insurance and did a whole, you know, kind of kind of a crowdsource funding to help pay her medical bills uh, because evidently couldn't afford to buy health insurance. She couldn't find it uh, because of pre-existing conditions and and not buying it. Uh, And in fact, the article I read said, hey, you know, they they looked up real quick, a couple hundred bucks a month. She could have gotten insurance. She just chose not to. Uh, that's that's because of the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. So good on good on Obamacare. Want to hear your thoughts? Email me Rick at the Rick Smith Miss any of the program? Grab the podcast. Appreciate you being here. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you back here next time. You've been listening to the Rick Smith Show. Email Rick. At Rick at the RickSmithShow.com. Until next time, this has been the Rick Smith Show, where working people come to talk. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.